We all have a yearning for love, but relationships can be confusing and complicated. Dr. Tammy Balashevsky says it all starts from within. It starts with a journey to center. Here's your host for Journey to Center on Empower Radio, Dr. Tammy Balashevsky. Hello, you beautiful people. So happy to be hanging out with you here today on Empower Radio. Problems in our relationships seem inevitable. Problems in our lives can seem never-ending. Have you ever had the experience just when you think you have your ducks in a row and everything is in order, here comes another curveball? It can seem our emotions have us strapped in tightly on a roller coaster and our moods are frequently dictated by things we have no control over. Buddha has said, life is suffering, but does it have to be this way? Is there a path we can take to discover and claim lasting happiness? I hope to be finding the answer to this question here today on Journey to Center. After personally struggling with all kinds of problems for decades, I finally decided to swap out the word problem with the word opportunity. This has supported me in beginning to perceive my challenges as a way of learning, expanding, and growing as a human being having this sometimes crazy earthly adventure. Another quote that I absolutely love was given to us by Albert Einstein. We cannot solve our problems with the same thinking we used when we created them. I've wondered in the past exactly what that has meant, and although I think I get it, I'm looking forward to attaining even more clarity about transforming our thinking, resolving our issues, experiencing altitude in our awareness, and ascending in our consciousness. We have the honor and privilege to be spending some time with wise man Karuna Ketan, psychotherapist and the author of the misleading mind. Karuna has been a student of Buddhist psychology and philosophy for over 30 years. He has also spent 12 years working with Tibetan refugees in Nepal and studying with Buddhist masters. Karuna's group practice applies Buddhist psychology to individual and organizational clients. So Karuna, thank you so much for hanging out with us here today on Empower Radio. Oh, thank you for inviting me to be here. I love your book. It makes some, I think, um, intense subjects very comprehensive. Uh-huh. It is an intense subject, and it's <laughs> deep subject and complex, isn't it? It is deep and complex, and, and you make it easy to understand. So I know um, the ideas in your book are rooted in Buddhism. Right. So I don't know, can you... Can you tell me a little bit about Buddhism? I don't know if it's possible to put it in a nutshell, but just for our listeners that may or may not be really familiar with the subject, I'd like to hear from your perspective yeah. what uh, that is, basic philosophy is. Which is kind of the goal of the book as well, right? That, that yes. um, you know, now it's unusual for people to think of a system of thought, which is often thought of as a religion, as something that they could use for themselves and not have to become a member of that religion, like Buddhism, offers that. As long as Dalai Lama often uh, uh, defines Buddhism as the science of mind, and I think if you think about the science of mind, what, what's that a synonym for? And that's a synonym for really psychology, isn't it? And so uh, I'm, I'm kind of wanting to uh, get the word out that these are a set of ideas that are universal principles that have, that have morph their ways into very different cultures, uh, everything from 
know, the south to Sri Lanka, east to Indonesia and, and Japan, Korea, north up into southern Russia, west as far as Afghanistan. And now they're coming into the modern world, uh, the western world, the modern world, and they're finding their way here and how they can help us uh, improve our lives, which is, I think, mainly through the psychological teachings. And again, many people don't really know that in Buddhist thought there's a huge uh, corpus of teachings. Uh, it's mainly psychology. It's about training the mind. And to put Buddhism in a nutshell, I'd say, uh, number one, it's about how to become happy, which we all want, and that the source of happiness is within the mind itself. And so mm. it, it talks about what are the sources of problems and that what are the causes of, of happiness. So it's very educational. Yes, it really is. So you talk about the similarities between Buddhism and psychology. Are there some differences? <laughs> you know, I took, it was difficult. That part of the book was actually a challenge for me because in some ways it's the differences that are in a way more interesting. Um, and I think that the fundamental difference, you know, is how we, how the two systems of thought describe the mind itself and and the, the identity of the person, and what the causes of happiness are. So they're quite different. Um, I mean, they're both obviously concerned with, psych- with the mind, because they're psychology, you know, the study of the psyche. But uh, the difference for me, I was, a, I was a Buddhist long before I became a therapist, and so when I moved back from Nepal, I uh, entered a, a clinical psych uh, pro- a master's in clinical psych program, and it was frustrating for me because... Um, the different theories that were presented in which I had to practice therapy from didn't necessarily agree with each other in terms in, in the modern in the modern psychology and modern theories. And this is tough because in Buddhist psychology, if you go to Sri Lanka and ask a Buddhist scholar there or you go to Japan and discuss with a Buddhist scholar there or Vietnam or or Tibet, you know, Nepal, and you ask them for what is you know, what is the nature of the mind and what is the, you know, how do, how do problems arise? Most, they actually have almost all the same, basically the same answers. So there is a unified theory that, that's agreed upon. And in Western psychology, modern psychology, it's still confused. I, it's very new science. Yeah, it's funny uh, what you're talking about. I went and got my uh, bachelor's in psychology after being, I guess, a metaphysician and studying spiritual psychology for many years. And I wanted to write a lot of my papers about Buddha and Buddhism and and different concepts. And I found myself often having uh, debates, if you will, with my professors. (laughs) Yeah, it is. That's right. That's right. Uh, And debate, by the way, is something very um, encouraged in Buddhist thought, and particularly it's been really systematized within the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. I mean, there's a lot of formal debate that, that, the, that the young monks learn and then the older they get, they engage in. And the, the, the purpose of the debate is because Buddha himself said, you know, don't, believe, don't accept what I teach just because I teach it. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You should test it like a goldsmith would test the quality of gold. I guess in the old days they would test, you know, with mercury and, I don't know, rub it and test to see how pure it was. And that's really, I, when I heard that as a young 21-year-old in Nepal, I thought, you know, I thought, thank, thank goodness, gosh, I get to actually preserve my intellect and, and uh, question these things and analyze and, and discover. And, and that's really a big, huge part of it. And I, 
I found that lacking in other, so many other systems. Well, I was involved in more Hinduism before I became Buddhist, and and uh, also know within certain Hindu traditions and Christian traditions that you know that you're not really that faith is a larger part of the practice rather than uh, logic and reasoning. Hmm. Yeah, to try to take the curiosity out of the process of life, I think is is a little. Um, I don't know, depressing. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, here we're encouraged to be curious. Yes. And you have to be curious, or else you're not going to, because you have to do it yourself. This is the yes. thing that people don't like to hear so much. They want someone else to rescue us, but you know, it, it just doesn't happen. It never has happened. If, if God could rescue us, I'm sure he would have by now, or if there's some guru that could rescue us, we'd all be rescued. Why would they be partial? Well, I, and this is a conversation that comes up a lot with uh, clients, students, peers. You know, it's like, well, we live on a planet of free will and choice. It's a double-edged sword. Yeah. But once you kind of kind of get the rules here, it's a blast. Right. That's right. And something you talk about in your book, and I really want to sink my teeth into this, is the subject of emotions. Oh, because yeah. they can certainly seem to control us and whip us around. And one of my one of my teachers said to me early on equanimity is the state of healing. When you can be in your equanimity rather than go into your emotions, you know you've healed something. Right. And the purpose is really get to that place of equanimity and peace. And that was such an interesting and, and different concept than I'd ever thought of before. It, well, it took you, me a while to figure that out. So I'd like to talk about the gift and challenge of emotions. Well, I think that, uh, you know, we, we should probably dig a little deeper in the sense that uh, what, we have to be able to define what it means to be mentally healthy, okay? I mean, it's kind of a dry clinical word, mentally healthy. But in this context, you see, you hit the, you hit the nail on the head where in Buddhist thought, everybody wants, every living being wants to be happy. And then it goes further and they say, well, happiness is actually a state of mind. And so if, and that's even a big, that's kind of a radical thought because it's not about uh, possessions or, you know, quality of a family or partner or, you know, where you live. All those conditions are helpful. It's not, it's not to say we shouldn't have those conditions. It's just not to be tricked into thinking that those are the source of happiness. Um, the source of happiness is a, is a mental state. And that state you could describe as a, in the, a state of equanimity, as you were talking about. And so when we talk about the emotions, it's actually... Uh, it's a little bit more than we could say emotions and thoughts too, um, but but the idea is that within our minds there are disturbing emotions and there are positive emotions, and we can't seem to to be free of the disturbing emotions or just disturbing thoughts uh, just without confronting them and dealing with them. So disturbing emotions are those that disturb the equanimity of the mind. It's as simple as that, and just and just and disturbing the equanimity of the mind is disturbing the happiness of the mind or the happiness of the person, of ourselves. So that's how kind of, that's kind of how it works. That's why the emotions are so important. They really are. And it's, it's been interesting for me to really kind of um, explore and experience being happy despite outward, outward circumstances not being what I want them to be. You know, sometimes yeah. I talk to clients and they're like, well, I'll be happy when this lawsuit is settled and I get a bunch of money. Right. What would you say to that person? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if they'd ask me, but uh, <laughs> say that person for them. <laughs> there'll, be a, there'll be another lawsuit. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's great to settle the lawsuit and, 
you know, get what you need. But it's, you know, the <laughs> the funny thing is, you know, you, it doesn't do anything about the attitude within the mind that's looking to these very temporary solutions as a source of happiness. Because, you know, it's like lottery winners. I think I quote that in the book. You know, they find that a year, or I don't know if it's a year or two years after someone wins the lottery, they generally find that their their uh, um, level of satisfaction in life is lower than before they won the lottery. So it's just like simple, you know, uh, uh, simple logic if you look. And the reason is, is because their their minds have become so much disturbed in terms of how to handle this new pressure of all this money, you know, and the and the and the, and the things it brings with it. So. Uh, it's just that we're misdirected, and that's that's our that's our problem. So the lawsuit guy, uh, if you're going to win all the lawsuits, I would be asking him or her, you know, so what's next? You know, what's going to come up in your mind after you win the lawsuit? And and it gets really interesting because as we expand our develop our own qualities, you know, of mind, you know, you can't help but thinking about the person who's going to lose the lawsuit because they're just like us too. That is a good point. Yeah. I mean, as long as we have enemies like that, that's, then we look at subduing all our enemies means I'll be happy. You will never be happy because there's no end to the amount of people that are going to be irritating us in our lives. It just doesn't stop. That's true. I mean, I have been lawsuit girl. And uh-huh. I, <laughs> it was stressing me out. Like, I can't be happy until this is done. And, and then what, I thought to myself, well, what is that going to feel like when it's done? And I just took a deep breath and I settled in my body and I felt very like free. And I'm like, well, can I have that feeling now? And so every day I would start my day getting into that feeling state of feeling free and peaceful and just this open flow of energy. And, you know, it was interesting because as hard as I had worked on resolving the lawsuit, it didn't get resolved. But when I started getting into the feeling state, it just kind of naturally shifted and gracefully just lifted. It was, right. it was an interesting experiments, if you will. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, not, not to say that we should be taken advantage of or exploited and that we shouldn't act. You know, that's what people, sometimes I, I get in discussions with people because they say, what, you know, then I shouldn't, I should just let my boss walk all over me. And it's not about that. It's cha- You said in the beginning of the show, it's about changing your uh, paradigm. You know, it's like a shift in paradigm that whether the boss walks over you or not, or whether you are in a lawsuit or not, is is just what it is. It's but it's not the thing that determines whether you are uh, content and satisfied. That that's what changes. Yes, you write about this in your book, and I loved it. You did talk about this very subject. It's not about necessarily forgiving and kind of oh everything's fine. It's also that balance about taking responsibility. Yeah. Where These is that not- line? Where is that balance? Yeah, things are not fine, by the way. <laughs> I mean, you know, things are not fine. And so if they're not fine, what are we going to do? Are we going to, so then you've got to go to the next level and go, okay, um, how, do I, how do I change my re- relationship with things, things mean the world? Because we don't have control really over uh, what's happening in the world. We have very, very little control. We do have a potential to have control over our minds. And that's really what it comes down to, and making that decision. That's the responsibility part. I'm responsible if I get, um, you know, if I get really, really upset because I'm getting every red light on the way back home to the, you know, for this interview. <laughs> I'm responsible for that. I, I'm not responsible for the red lights. I can't do anything about those. 
Um, but I am responsible for my attitude and my irritation as I'm heading home, my impatience. Yes, and how you, how you deal with those situations. You know, yes. two of my very favorite quotes come from Buddha, and, and it comes back to this all the time for me with the whole journey to center. Um, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is within, and Buddha right. says there is no out there and that the world is a manifestation of the mind. Yes. So as we take responsibility for our inner reality, the outer reality shifts. That's right. And it's such a different way of thinking, especially I'm not tra traveled like you are and haven't got to go to the different countries and study the different philosophies. But here it seems in America that we are definitely outward focused. We're, we tend to be a pretty materialistic society. I don't know what your thoughts are about that. Yeah. But it's, di it's a completely different way of thinking. Yes, from, we are. From how we're raised here. <laughs> uh, it's, just, it's, it's a whole, it's a cultural value. And, you know, we, we uh, unfortunately, our educational system still teaches. It's changing, you know, where we're helping children understand that there is an inner world and an interconnection that we have with, uh, you know, our fellow uh, citizens, so to speak. But it is a, it is a completely different way of expressing uh, how we function in the world. And, and uh, at least in the countries, you know, the Asian countries, you know, I don't want to glorify them, but they have that, still have that understanding that there is a personal responsibility and that um, the world maybe doesn't exist the way it appears. And uh, this is really, really quite huge. It's quite huge. And it has to do with philosophy. They, you know, learning philosophy is integrated with, I mean, we learn philosophy too. It's just our philosophy, and I'm generalizing, but our philosophy here in the States, say, is one where, uh, you know, success is going to bring you happiness, and success is measured by different things, often uh, by material success, but not only successful jobs, all that outer stuff. And that's just what we've been trained to do for hundreds of years. And it is very, very true. It's like, yes, get a good education, be successful, you'll be happy, where... I think the true truth is if you can be happy, then you will manifest success, which, again, like you had said, could look a lot of different ways for a lot of different people. Yeah. And, excuse me. I wanted to... Yeah, sorry. Uh, <laughs> also, you know, a lot of people, uh, the, the stereotype of a Buddhist is someone who's really mellow and peaceful and doesn't care. And that's, I don't know where that, you know, where and how that's been propagated because... You know, the, the really developed Buddhists that I know and I've met in my life, they care a lot, and they're not, uh, they're not lazy. They're actually in, engaged in all kinds of social and, um, I don't know, philanthropic uh, activities. They, they get the connection uh, because it's almost as if by working on, internally, one begins to really feel the connection with everybody and everything that's happening. So... It's not enough just to feel good for yourself, and that's something I was a little concerned about in the book because it can just sound like another self-centered approach to I'm, you know, it's all about me. I want to be happy, so I, I do make some pains to express in there that this is about all of us. It's not just about me. I mean, for me to be a good father, it's the same thing. It's about taming and training my mind. The more trained and tamed and and wiser person I am wise in the sense of understanding how I exist and how the world exists, I'm a better father. I'm convinced of it. 
and that's a subject that comes up a lot, you know, in dealing with my students or clients. Well, you know, if I try to take care of me and be happy, that's selfish. And I'm like, well, are you selfish with the little S or selfish with the big S where you're connecting with source, connecting with your soul? When you do that, you give from a full well. And it's like, you know, putting the oxygen mask on first in the plane. That's when you're really going to be able to be of support to others. So it is a, it's a certainly a different way of looking at things. Yes. And you have um, to be careful though because yes. uh you know that's the other issue I had with um I have with uh, modern psychology is it is very much directed towards oneself. So I do I do butt up against that idea that you know you have to uh you know I need my space, I need to take care of myself first. And there that's not enough. Really, really, what we need to inject into this, these ideas is you need to take care of yourself first. Why? And very, very commonly people just sort of not be able to answer that. But really the answer to that should be so that I can have a more positive impact on those around me. And that's what I'm really worried about that we're still missing and that these, this Buddhist idea, Buddhist psychology, is just going to be, you know, a new language for developing... <laughs> You know, a focus on ourselves and be sort of continuing our self-absorption. I love having this conversation with you, and it does bring up an interesting um, point, you know, because I think we each have to find our own personal balance. We have to find our authentic shape, because I think I erred on the other side of this scenario. I'm a bit of a people pleaser, Uh and I guess I was... Um, it had been pointed out to me at one point that I was a bit of a martyr. Well, I want to be of service. I want to sacrifice myself for the good of others. And because that was my natural tendency, I did need to pull back a little bit to get to this this balance of gracious giving and receiving. It's not all about me. I want to be able to be of service and support others. But if I don't take care of me, I'm not really giving the best of myself. Where, you know, maybe people have innately different tendencies, if you will, yeah. So, well, it it, um, it also in Buddhist uh, psychology. I don't think I emphasize too much in the book, but uh, intention or motivation is really, really, really key. So we look again; it's an internal. Uh, um, it's a, it's a, we call it emotion or thought that we we actually don't judge. You know, if you're out there, you know, helping the homeless or you know helping the de- dying or you know. Working with Mother Teresa, where Mother Teresa in Calcutta, we don't actually necessarily judge 100% what you're doing as whether it's good or bad. Um, we always go back, starting with the motivation. So, you know, you can be the biggest philanthropist in the world, the thinking of others, but your motivation is really about, you know, developing your reputation. Other people will like you, or you don't feel, you just need to feel good about yourself and things like that. So again, it's it's really a tricky. When I said in the beginning of the hour, it's, it's complex and deep. One way it's very simple, and the other way it's very complex. Complex in the sense that our motivation, if it's for others, then you know we'll have a positive impact on others, and we will be happy as well. But if it's really about me again, uh, like I think you were describing, then you're going to end up uh, again hitting up against certain problems and dissatisfaction. You're going to be disappointed. Uh, fearful, things like that will come up. So intention before anything uh, is really something that we need to check into. It brings to mind a quote that uh, one of my teachers said to me once, and it made me laugh. The problem is 90% of what you say and 100% of what you do is for yourself, and there isn't one. (laughs) That's right. 
that person. <laughs> yeah. So what do we do with that? <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things that you know. It was a. It was a. It was a. It was something I had to sit with. There were a lot of those little. You probably experienced this in studying with your your Buddhist master friends. They would say something, and you're sitting there going, "Huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have to sit with that for a little while. I don't think Definitely. I understand." <laughs> Definitely. Well, you know, uh, I like the, I like the quote, and they, they and also just to, for people, you know. So I said, well, you know, Buddhism, it says, you know, there's no self and, and nothing exists, which is just really not true. What we say is that the self doesn't exist the way we think it does. There is a self. And the problem is we think it exists a certain way that does not. So, you know, um, that's, again, a deep part of, of the psychology. All problems we say arise from this misunderstanding of our identity and the misunderstanding of how things are. But it doesn't mean they don't exist. It's just they don't exist the way we think they do. It's fun to play with. It's fun to think about. It's fun to have yeah. conversation about, for me anyway. Right. To me, this is just my favorite thing to do. It's why I love doing this radio show. So, Karuna, we're going to go to break. And for my listeners, this is going to be a really fun next half hour. When we come back, Karuna is going to talk about the primary obstacle to happiness as well as the most effective therapy and how we can implement it immediately. So very excited to be having this conversation with Karuna Ketan. So happy you're hanging out with us. Hang on, we'll be right back with more good stuff. Before there were computer games and HDTV, cram courses and teaching to the test, there was this thing called imagination a tool so powerful it could transport kids on the most amazing journeys of their lives from outer space to center field at Yankee Stadium it is for these journeys that destination imagination was created an extraordinary after-school program in creativity and teamwork for every child at destination imagination teams are formed and challenges are met with a whole lot of imagination and while we can't guarantee it'll get your kid into Harvard or onto American Idol we're pretty sure that Destination Imagination will be the most important journey they make this year. Maybe any year. Parents, teachers, start a Destination Imagination team by calling 888-321-1503 or visit DestinationImagination.org. That's DestinationImagination.org. My name is Ruth Rusi. I'm a retired teacher. I'm 91 years old, and this is how I live united. I say retired, but not really. Once a week, I read books to children as part of United Way's education program. Reading to a child creates links between language and literacy. It creates a bond between grown-up and child. And believe it or not, it prepares them for a better academic future. Oh, we read about frogs and flies and pigs with wings, all sorts of juicy stuff. It's a joy to watch all those little faces. I figure I have the time and they have the need. And I've always believed that if we're not here to help each other, then what are we here for, really? My name is Ruth Rusi. I help kids prepare to succeed in school. So I don't just wear the shirt, I live it. Give, advocate, volunteer, live united. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. The odds of a young girl being discovered by an industry insider while singing to herself pumping gas? One in 300 million. 
The odds of the daughter of a clergyman from Severn, Maryland, spending 11 weeks at number one on the U.S. singles charts? One in 19 million. The odds of going on to win six Grammy Awards? One in 1.4 million. The odds of selling over 40 million records? One in 800,000. And the odds of this musician and performer having a child diagnosed with autism? One in 150. I'm Tony Braxton, and I encourage you to learn the signs of autism at AutismSpeaks.org. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Autism Speaks. It's time to listen. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. You're listening to Empower Radio. Now back to Journey to Center with Dr. Tammy Belashevsky. Hello, my lovely friends. I'm so happy to be hanging out with you. Hope you're getting as much value from this conversation I'm having with Karuna as I am. (laughs) Thanks for being here, Karuna. This is great. Thank you. So there's a question you ask in your book that really had me stop and think, and I I love it when that happens. You um, asked us to ask ourselves how many times a day we get mad. And I was like, oh, that's such a great question. And I I thought about it, and I was like, I used to get mad every day, and now I think I get mad once about every three days. (laughs) That's pretty good. Not bad at all. So I asked my husband how often he got mad a day, and he said he thought twice, maybe twice a day. But it's a very interesting question to consider, you know, because, again, that anger can whip us around. Yeah, and, you know, uh, here's – well, the good news is you you don't get angry that much. That's great. (laughs) Now I'll just throw a little – kind of a little twist in there, uh, how often do you get irritated a day? Mm-hmm. Agitated or annoyed, that happens a little bit more, but that seems to be, the volume of that seems to be turning down as well. But I, I do as you suggest in your book, and I start paying attention when I feel that way, and then I kind of work with that. I take responsibility for that, which is something right. you know I want to talk to you about. Um, you mentioned, and I find this fascinating that the one of the primary obstacles that we have as human beings to i guess getting to the place of consciousness and happiness is self-pity yeah yeah can you tell me more about that well yeah um the study it's a topic worth studying really in depth my own teacher lama yeshi who passed away in 1984 started traveling to all, all over the world, the Western countries. And when he come back from America, I think it wasn't maybe just but in particularly America, he would say, you know, I don't know, here in Nepal we're so poor, but when I'm in America I feel so much sadder than when I'm here, mm-hmm. you know, for the people. He said, and he said, you know, I don't understand, and, and His Holiness Dalai Lama said the same thing, this idea of self-pity mind, I think His Holiness referred to it as the feeling of the guilt, you know, low self-esteem. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, in the Tibetan culture, and even in the Nepali culture, you just don't see that. And, in fact, in the Tibetan language, there's no, uh, there's actually no uh, term or no word for guilt, you know, self-guilt that we do, that guilty thing. They don't I'm have sure. it. They, they do have um, regret, and regret is a healthy, actually a healthy attitude, but when it becomes unhealthy is, I think, what we call guilt, which is the dwelling on the regret. So uh, we're linked with 
our mistakes. In other words, our identity, if we do something wrong, rather than just uh, regretting it, and then you can learn from it, we go into this place where I'm, it's actually an, uh, a statement of my identity, and then therefore I myself as a person am, am uh, flawed and doomed. Whereas in the Buddhist culture thought, we're always, I mean, not we're always going to make mistakes, but mistakes happen, and they are the, the, the fodder or the, what we need in order to develop our, our spiritual qualities, our mental qualities, is only through problems anyway. So guilt is a way of getting stuck. It's really a, a clinging and a strong attachment. It's very sticky, and, and actually it doesn't produce any real result, a positive result at all. So the self-pity one has a lot to do with uh, the fact that we're not... Um, in my family, for example, mistakes were... I was never taught how to make mistakes. Mistakes are just wrong. And that's really, a, that, that's really a shame that we don't learn how to be mistake makers, how to handle mistakes. That, I think, is a, a big part of self-pity. And it's a very destructive emotion. It's a destructive state of mind. It actually produces no positive result. Regret. I've heard that Regret. guilt is one of the most useless emotions. Useless. It doesn't have any value. Uh, regret does, but not guilt. Yeah, because if you dwell too much in guilt, I think you can go really into that depression, and that's completely, you have no life force, you have no energy. It's Something I heard about the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is uh, what we do, and shame is who we are. Mm-hmm. And these two qualities are, I think, the biggest issue that um, I've had to heal and that my clients are working with. Yeah. And I try to support them in cultivating self-compassion. Yeah. which may at first blush seem similar to self-pity, but really there's a huge difference, wouldn't you say? Oh, I think there's a huge difference, yeah. I mean, self-compassion is is actually accepting that, you know, we have these limitations and we make mistakes. And self-pity is not uh, having any tolerance for yourself and having tolerance for making mistakes. And it usually also comes out of frustration. You don't know what else to do. That's an important part of self-pity is knowing that uh, there's no wisdom. You know, we don't have the wisdom of having to deal with these situations I seem to find myself in. And, and so I think it's kind of a stuckness, and, and the self-pity comes from also from being generally stuck and a misunderstand, not understanding what to do about the situation. Uh, but it's really a dwelling. It's a strong attachment, by the way. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. a very strong attachment. to. Yeah, it can uh, be a bad habit. It's a bad habit. So this to me was the core, I think, teaching that I got from reading your book, and it's kind of summed up in your subtitle, subtitle, how we create our own problems and how Buddhist psychology can help us solve them, almost like using our problems as a gift and opportunity and portal for our soul learning. That's right. I mean, uh, when we get clear that the the problem is, uh, the problem is the problem, I mean, you know, we get clear that the, these these uh, negative, afflictive emotions or afflictive thoughts are the problem. Uh, then, um, by the way, since they're inside of us, we're the only ones that can really deal with them. And uh, even if you go to a really, you know, we go to a therapist or someone, a guide or someone helping us, you know, they don't, they can't go inside our heads and they can't, you know, rewire the brain. But uh, so it always comes back that in the end we are responsible. And I think, sometimes I think that the Buddhist 
psychological approach is not so attractive to people because it it demands that you have to take responsibility. And it's not just demanding; it's just that that's the way it's going to work. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not it's not a it's not a uh, it's not a value. It's just what is. And sometimes people maybe aren't quite ready to to do that and are feeling. Oh, I, I think you're absolutely right. So many of us, you know, have been guilty of this in the past. You know, wanting somebody to fix me or rescue me or tell yeah. me what to do. And this that I think if you're walking around with that mentality, you're looking for that person outside of you. That's the the foundation and essence of a codependent or dysfunctional yeah. relationship. Yeah, the alternative is scary too, right? You feel so you can feel alone or you don't know. You know, you don't know where how to start. Yeah, that's that's something lacking in our sort of educational system. You know, in general, of how to teach people how to become their own therapist, and that's what. We and do. so, yes, that brings us back to what I mentioned before we went to break: yeah. the most effective therapy and how we can begin to implement it. So, yes, let's talk more about that. Well, the uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to avoid. You know the the single answer thing. You know the quick fix, but but I will speak a little bit about where we should head. Um, you know that in Tibetan, the the Tibetan word for Buddhist is Nangpa, and Nangpa means Nang means inside or inner, and Pa means a, a person or a being. So it's about being an inner being. What that means is that your default mode. So. My default mode in general is if something's wrong, it's out there, right? And in, if, you, if I was really becoming a good Buddhist, then when something's wrong, I go in here. Not that I'm wrong, but I look to inside in terms of figuring out how to, be, uh, how to deal with the situation so that my mental state first is the one that, that is uh, balanced and happy, and then I deal with the problem externally. So because the first thing to do is to begin to become curious as to what's, what's the connection with the problem and my inner state of being. That's the very first thing. To become your own therapist means to understand your mind. So the, and just understanding how the mind works actually solves problems. You don't even have to so much do so much more. I mean, you have to do a lot more, but that's a huge step, just making that step in knowing that whatever I'm confronted with, uh, I have a choice. And we, and then you were talking earlier about free will. Free will, you know, people say, do we have free will? And the answer is yes and no, right? You have free will if you exercise it. And if you don't, then you're just, you know, uh, working in a de- default habitual mode. So free choice comes from remembering you have a choice. So that's a very, that's a huge step. Become yeah, conscious you know, of that can, because, yeah, if you don't know you have free will, then maybe you don't have free will. <laughs> you have to right. choose it. You mm-hmm. don't because you, we're just, um, in this sense, a victim of habitual thinking and the misleading mind. All these misleading emotions are mis- misleading. They run the show. We don't run the show. So this is about being free, you know, is being in control, actually. And, it's not being, and we're not in control. You know, the mind can do what, it really, we're so fragile. We're like a, we're like a leaf in the wind, really. Because if you hear one bad, someone says one bad thing to you, or you come out of the parking lot and someone's dented your car and driven off, your mood changes immediately. <laughs> it's amazing how quickly our mood can change. I know. My Facebook was hacked this morning. I was so mad. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I'm mad today. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's just, you know, the fa- our Facebook page is always going to be hacked. There's a metaphor, right? <laughs> 
So, so it's really for the per- so you know the first step is knowing you have a choice and knowing that you uh, have an ability to be in control, and it's all in your hands. And there are people that will help. They took responsibility, took the action steps. I still felt a little agitated, but I worked it out. (laughs) Exactly. And the next thing is knowing that, okay, so I have a choice, but then the next thing is really understanding how the mind itself is very untrained, and it's in control of everything, basically. We don't have much control, even though we should. And so then the, the training comes, why there's so much talk about mind training and mindfulness and meditation is, is to really understand that meditation, again, the Tibetan word in meditate, for meditation is, um, the Tibetan word is gom, which means to become familiar. It doesn't mean you know, focused or concentrated or, you know, sitting without moving. It really means becoming familiar. And it means becoming familiar with your mind and your problems, how things arise. Now, it just so happens to become really good at becoming familiar, we need to quiet our minds because we can't concentrate on what we're trying to concentrate on. So so that's where mind training is the next thing about developing a, a quality of mindfulness and focus so that we can begin to really look at the mind and stop our habitual reactions to things. You don't need to react to your Facebook page being hacked in the way we do. You don't need to. If you're in control, you're free. You can react however you want to react. Mm-hmm. And when we want to react in a way that brings more happiness, as you called equanimity, to the mind, then you'll respond that way. And uh, it's very, yes. very... So that's, I think, the self-therapy starts with that. Well, you give a really beautiful analogy in your book, and I talk about this a lot, but you go into it even more in regards to, like, watching your life like you're watching a movie. Yes. And sometimes I will actually say, I need to get back in the theater chair instead of (laughs) into the flat screen here. Yeah, right. So I can get some distance, some altitude, so that I'm not sucked into the emotion of what's going on. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, yeah, I think the the essence of, of this work is about understanding how the world really exists. And again, I said, as the world exists and how our, how we exist, our personalities, our identity, and ourself. And, um, you know, we do not see, as Anais Nin said, we don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what happens is, for example, you know, everything is actually in a state of change and impermanence. We call it impermanence, which means this change. And it doesn't mean the change of the seasons or the sun, day. It does mean that, but it doesn't only mean, you know, day and night and, and the season changing. And I'm getting, It actually means that in this very moment there's radical change happening. The atoms are moving and sound is... All the atoms are in flux and the mind is moving. In fact, there's nothing, almost nothing, that's static. Almost nothing. There's a few things that are static, but they're, they're not relevant right now. But the way we see the world is we see things as static. It's amazing. You know, intellectually, we go, yeah, 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 I know everything's changed. But we don't see things that way. So in one thing, we're not seeing reality at all. We, don't, we see things kind of as slides, you know? Kind of slide comes up of, you know, what, what I'm seeing now, and then 10 minutes later, another slide. And we don't really see that there's this constant flow and this movement that's going on. If we did see things that way, we would react a lot differently to how things arise within us. So not seeing things as they are then drives us to, 
respond in ways with uh, strong attachment or strong anger and uh, strong emotions, and we're responding to things that are really just mental images because those things themselves are gone already. The, the, the purpose of seeing things like a movie is because they kind of are. You know, this moment right now is gone. It's never going to be around again, but we don't see things that way. We're, That's so we're true. Gonna... You know, I read someplace that control is actually the the biggest addiction that human beings suffer from, and, and it's you, you can't control anything. No. So to, to surrender that illusion of control and just to be able to sit back, relax, and enjoy the journey, to me that's become my new uh, uh, posture, I think, in, in, in my human experience and sure feels a lot better. <laughs> yeah, and then so then what, what we do is uh, how – so if I asked you how often are you able to reside in that place? In a day. How often? Day. Yeah, how many minutes or hours? Well, I'm going to give you, well, during my waking hours, about maybe 50%. It's like just uh-huh. a, just remembering to kind of settle back into myself where I'm just like, you know, it, it came up a couple weeks ago when I was doing meditation. It's like I feel like I'm holding onto this branch on the side of the river. What if I let that go? Uh-huh. What if I just right. relax and let life carry me where it would have me go. And I feel like I had to surrender, and this was a hard one for me, ambition. Yes. I had to surrender my ambition. I think I'm still productive, but I don't have a particular focus and intention as far as something I have to be doing. Right. So I was going to ask you, if by, by giving, uh, letting go of ambition, have you become less ambitious? You know what I mean? Less oh, that's a really good question. I I guess not. I, I, st- I mean, I'm in this radio show with you. I'm not just laying in bed. Bomb <laughs> bombs. <laughs> right. right. You know? I'm still showing it, up. It, yeah. It's changing. It's just really changing attitude. That's all it, it really is. I mean, um, you're probably going to be uh, uh, working and being productive no matter what. It's in your probably in your DNA. And, uh, you know, being ambitious is a, is a different kind of thing. Of course, ambition is good. You know, it can be good. It just depends. Comes back to motivation again. You know, and also keeping focus. So, you know, we are you are we ambitious with sort of a blind drive, or are we ambitious with intention and consciousness? You know, intention is a big part. Awareness. Love that. I think I'm ambition with more peace now. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's more it. inspiration and just it's peaceful. Well, it's like, uh, you know, when you're younger, it's the ambition is, i gotta, I got to get this job, and i got to progress, and i got to get promoted. Uh, and that mind is very uh, disturbed. Well, you know, and as you were mentioning that, what comes forward for me is the, the primary motivating energy behind that is a fear. is a fear-based yeah. emotion. Yeah. yeah. And uh, what do we, what's fear of what? Uh, not getting it done, not getting it right, not making a difference, not not getting it right, what, not getting what? it finished. I and don't what, know. Why is that so fearful? So what if we don't, if we don't get it finished, what is it that we're going to experience? That we're I don't finished? know because I believe in reincarnation. You're <laughs> never going to get it done. <laughs> I think Abraham says that you're never going to get it done, you're never going to get it right, so you might as well just enjoy the journey. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting though. The, the fear that we have is like, um, I'm not getting it done. So it's like, do we, we don't feel good about ourselves because we measure you know what, ourselves? My, as you're asking, my the biggest thing for me was my ambition and my fear is that I'm not going to find the people I'm supposed to find to help the people I'm supposed to help. Like I'm a this mother 
duck looking for all her ducklings and I'm going to miss some of them. Uh-huh. And I had to really surrender that. It's like if somebody's really supposed to find me or if there's something I'm really supposed to do, I'm going to trust that the universe is going to help make this happen. I don't have to do this alone. Right, because you don't have the control. Yeah, that's really? a tough one to surrender, but that has yeah. been my absolute intention recently. And I do feel much more peaceful. Right. It's, well, the amazing thing is that every, you know, everyone else in the universe has their stuff as well. So if we can't control our own stuff, then how are we going to control whether someone's going to call you on the phone or not and look you up, right? Yeah, I just have to get, let that go. I don't think you'll be less successful. But well, it's funny because I thought, well, if I really miss it, I can go back and pick it up later. But so far, I'm not missing it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So, Karuna, you talk about pleasure and happiness not being synonymous. Right. They're not. What, what does that mean? I mean, don't we have to have pleasure to be happy and vice versa? Pleasure's okay. Um, pleasure's okay. So it's not like, I like you my know, massages. I like my coffee. <laughs> I know. Me too. <laughs> me too. It's again okay. So it's about looking again deeper in the psychology of this. Pleasure is fine. The problem is that it's very hard for us. We instinctively cling to the pleasure, okay, rather than just enjoying it and letting it go. Because uh, the attachment kind of rather than the preference. Mm-hmm. It's because you know that pleasure we talked about a few minutes ago about impermanence. And and change the pleasure is moving. You know, if you were really to watch, let's like say, what would be an, an example? The, the um, massage. Okay, I mean, I've, I've joked with the person giving me a massage. I said, well, maybe I'll stay for two hours. <laughs> maybe I'll stay for three hours. You know, but actually, because it feels good, right? And and, and in this Western modern culture of ours, uh, more pleasure equals more happiness, right? That's the way it's that's the way it's kind of defined. Right. So the trick is how, you know, you go from your massage and you go straight home to your massage chair and then you sit on that and then you jump <laughs> into your, your jacuzzi bath. And, you know, it's really interesting. If pleasure were the answer to happiness, all we would need to do is just have a constant 24-hour massage, right? <laughs> but what happens? See, the pleasure, the pleasure is not actually that enjoyable because it's not sustainable. Any pleasure changes suffering, doesn't it? If you were on the massage table for three hours, you would be crawling out of your skin after a while. Kind of annoyed, lost your muscle tone. <laughs> yeah, and you got to get up. i got to stretch. i got to get up, and this person is, you know. Anyway, you see what I'm saying? Pleasure always, given enough of it, will change. And so the mistake about thinking that pleasure is happiness is, is the mistake. Not just experiencing pleasure and then moving on, letting go. That's okay, but we are habituated to think, more pleasure equals more happiness, therefore I need to preserve it, you know, and, um, and, in, and it never endures. Pleasure is like everything else. It, it arises and falls. Even your cup of coffee, if you were really analyzing, if you could just step back, watch yourself drink the coffee and actually look at how much of that time, of that 15 minutes, is pleasurable. It's like minute. It's when the coffee hits your tongue and then it kind of goes down your throat and then it's gone. Take another step, and then it gets a little colder. And so you know, you put it. In a, I don't know if you microwave it because that's sort of a sin. Sometimes I do. Yeah, sometimes I, I do. Too because, yeah, <laughs> got to get that pleasure going, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so again, a good cup of coffee is great, 
It's the clinging to this is making me happy. Uh, that's our problem. Because if we really believe that, then you, after the coffee, you have to have a cigarette. And after the cigarette, you have to have a joint. And after the joint, you have to have a drink. And after the drink, you have to have sex. And after the sex, you got to take a hot shower. And after, you know, it's like... It's always something. Mm-hmm. It's always something. And that's, a, that's an uncontrolled mind. And that's uh, what we're trying to get a, a handle on. Yeah, I think it's a difference between living with a clenched fist versus an open hand and just living in flow and balance. And again, happiness isn't outside of us. It's a quality of experience that's within us. Right. Such an empowering yeah. concept when we really get that. Yeah, and, and I have to say, you know, uh, Lam Yeshi, my teacher again, said, you know, he said, you, you, you really have to understand that you should enjoy, you people don't even know how to enjoy pleasure that well. You just enjoy <laughs> not present it. for it. Mm-hmm. Not present for it. He said, "You don't even know how to make a good cup of tea." And I thought that was pretty amazing. And he said, "You know, if you have the ability, buy the most beautiful things. You know, but don't get hung up on these other sources of happiness." You know, but people I love, love that. beautiful things. Yeah. Yeah, that's really some good stuff. So, Karuna, for people that might be intrigued about you and your teachings, how right. can they find you? Well, probably the easiest way is to go to my website, thekarunagroup.com. I try to up, keep my events uh, page updated. I do do workshops around all over the place. and um, Or they can email me and um, see what's... Uh, the, the main thing, I, you know, I'm kind of becoming a little bit um, you know, there's different. I want to eventually put more teachings on my site that people can access. They're just not they're not totally there yet. So workshops are the, probably the main um, availability for me at this point. And your wonderful book, The Misleading Mind, well, how we create our own problems and how Buddhist psychology can help us solve them, which I absolutely recommend. I have my little highlighter pen out and just highlighted little nuggets that I wanted to sit with and absorb and think about and roll around in my mind. And such really wonderful teachings that you share. Thank you. And I, you said at the beginning about I was a wise person, but, you know, I'm not sure I'm that wise, but I really have to share what, what the wise people I've been with. You know, I think it's selfish of me, you know, not to share that. That's a big motivation, writing the book. And people can't go to Nepal for 12 years and study and, and or don't have the time. So yeah, how I really amazing. Hope I really hope that people can benefit from, you know, myself benefiting. So um, that's the idea. Well, I have certainly benefited from this conversation. I've just enjoyed you thoroughly, Karuna, and just so honored you. you took the time to have this time with us on Empower Radio. So to my listeners, thanks for hanging out with us. I know you got value from this, and I would love to hear from you with your thoughts, ideas. You can write to me on my website, TammyBPhD.com. That's spelled with an I, TammyBPhD.com. And just know that I really care about what you think, how you feel, how can I support you. Um, Let's get a dialogue going. So please take care of yourself. Find that sacred space inside of you. Live in your heart and just God bless you. Love from our hearts to yours onward and upward. Bye for now.